boxing is never gonna die. It's fighting, right? It's primitive. It's like sex. We need it. Yes. Guess what happens when you buy castles, man? <laughs> you gotta fight till you're 60 years old. Don't buy castles. That should be the first rule. P.O.P., baby. He was getting in those ears. You're out of your mind, bro. Instead of boxing, it's a sport that keeps on fucking us over and over. But because I'm in love with it, I stay with it. <laughs> And welcome to P.O.P. That's picking all punches. It's your boy, Sergio Chacon, and, my, and I'm with my man, Derek Dresser. What's happening? How you doing, Pop? I'm doing well. How you living? How you feeling? I'm feeling great, man. I completed the marathon in way much better time than my previous. Now, so I'm feeling myself, God. I know you're feeling yourself. Now, the goal was to break four. So? We did not get you're already, there. You're already, you know, shitting on my parade. I did I, 418. That's considerably better since the, from the first one. That's considerably better. What was what was your first one? It was, I forget, but I definitely. It was I, like you beat it by like 20 minutes, right? By 20 I minutes. I will say this. You started training late. You completed your training. You were on the road. You did a 20. Didn't you do a 20-mile run in yeah. Florida or some shit? Yeah. So, listen, man. The training Dirt bag for shit. it was was grueling because I was out in Fort Lauderdale with Chrissy, mm. you know, um, doing stand up out there, 11 p.m. on a Saturday night or Friday night, cleaning up messes on stage. You know, people were unruly in Florida. Right, right, you right. You know, I, I get up on stage. I ended up hosting. I was supposed to be featuring, and whatever the feature act stunk up the place. They sh they did they they, they shat on stage. I go up. To, uh, to clean up this mess. There's people smoking in the freaking crowd. One guy's uh, foot is on is on the stage. Oh, that would have done Yeah, yeah, me like nuts. I, I said, like, no, 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 we're not doing any of that. Yeah. Get your foot off the stage. One yeah. guy's trying to talk. I said, I don't want to talk to you. No one came to listen to your shit. Right. You put up, I don't know why you're rolling a blunt. You can't smoke it in here. It's mm. not Colorado. Mm, mm, you know what I'm saying? Mm, so mm. I had to shut all that shit down. I was a little irate because I knew I had to run 20 plus miles the following day and unknown grounds. In my in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. I was given a plan. I woke up at 5 a.m. I ran. My knees started to fuck me up. Right. And I did the fi last five miles on a treadmill. What I'm saying is, the tra <laughs> I like the, how you snuck that in at the end. The training was grueling. <laughs> right. But I recovered well. A lot of that stuff I feel like applied and and and, and turned right over to the actual race because the day of the race, I was beat up leading up to the day of the race. I mean. It was like power up. Yeah, I just felt like a different man. I felt I, strong. That I happens think, a lot on race day. You just you like it's a whole. You feel it. It's a whole nother level. Because the hay is in the barn. You know what I mean. You did the work. You did the work, and I I saw those pictures, man. I I, I unfortunately I could not get out there on race day to uh, cheer you on. But it's I was all good. I was with I you didn't in need spirit. You. I didn't need my name on my shirt. Oh, I ran to the rhythm of my own breath for the first ten miles. That bridge that killed my ass, the Queens Bridge. Uh -huh. What's that? What's that bridge? Fifty Ninth Street. The Fifty Ninth Street Bridge was my nemesis. So when I saw that bridge, I was like, "This is the fucker that tightened up my hips." Well, the thing, the thing about that Wait, bridge. Let me just say, and I ran up that shit, and I was, and I checked my hips, and I was one of those annoying runners. I was like, "Come on, guys, we can do this." Uh, and people were grunting. People were like, "Oh, well, fuck." Well, that's the thing about that bridge. You get to that bridge, right? You're you're surrounded by people for the whole race. Then you get to that bridge, and You're there's alone. no people, and all you hear is, <sighs> yeah. and that's when it, it gets into the dome yeah, piece, man. and you got to see where you're at in your dome piece. You heard? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happens. So, you know, you get caught up in the hype. People, you know, the Mexicans and Italians out in Brooklyn cheering you on, and then you got the, you know, you know all the different neighborhoods you yeah, hit up. Yeah, You know they they you know they they cheering you. Yeah, they're cheering, man. Pushing and you. It's powerful. You hit that bridge and you got nothing. It's just then you. you're alone. Yeah. And um, yo, once I got off that shit, I had a nice rhythm and I ended mad strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was an amazing experience. I think I think I you know it was. I wanted you to, to break outcome. four. I mean that that's that's me as uh, you know as a uh, as your your coach. Uh, for, for the marathon, even though you did start late, I, I felt in my heart that you could break four. It was a, a great finish. I feel that if you trained the full time next time that you could break four. Yeah. What do you say? I think I'm what done say, with New York. What, what say you? <laughs> what say you, sir? I might, I might do Boston. What? I might do Boston flip-flops. <laughs> really challenge myself. Boston is a tough course. Oh, cut it out. It's a, bro, first of all, you got you to gotta qualify for Boston. How old are you? 
42. 42, yeah. You're going to have to run it in less than 350. You're going to have to run a marathon, a Boston qualifying marathon, in less than three hours, maybe actually three three hours and five minutes to qualify for Boston. Why is that? Because I'm a New Yorker? No, to qualify for Boston, you have to hit, hit that time. So everybody that runs the Boston Marathon... They either qualify flies. for that time or they raise $7,500. Mm. And $7,500 is a lot of money to raise and while you're trying to train for a marathon. Could you imagine the stress where, of that? Where does the money go? I'm curious. Where does the money go? Maybe we should have one of those marathon organizers come on here and sit down and let's go through the paperwork. Because yeah. where does that money go? Boston Athletic Association, the most racist city in America. <laughs> <laughs> does it go to BLM? I think it goes to... It go, you, you can run for charities. You run, I, I'm tired you of run for charities, charities because it's like, oh, fight for cancer. What about if I'm pro-cancer? What about if I'm pro-disease, death, and despair? Why, well, what are your reasons behind this logic? I, I'm, you, you got me locked in. Because, you know, if it has to do with violence or death, I'm in. So, well, <laughs> I'm just saying. Are you, are you about the, the population? The, main, uh, the money goes. The money goes to whatever charity you choose to run, you run for. Yeah, I don't buy it. I, Hard listen, sniff at the end. I I'm, don't buy it. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think yeah. it's a big racket. You're not going to get any argument over here, Pop. You're not going to get it. I listen, I'm not going to get any resistance. I know, I know how dark human beings are, especially when it comes to money. I'm just saying, man, if you're, if you're pro-death and despair, then you put money into things that matter, like caskets and urns and shit that's useful to people. Anyway, we have a fantastic show lined up today. This guy is a controversial figure. He was friends with a dirtbag. Mary, uh, any, hold any, on, give me, I got to get over <laughs> pro-death and despair. Just give me one second. <laughs> any man named Marion is a dirtbag. Yeah. Think of Suge Knight. First, night, la- first name, last name. Yeah. Marion Barry. Marion. Marion. <laughs> so he was good friends with him, and he was also uh, the manager of, of Riddick Bowl. And he's an interesting Can guy. Can we just, re- uh, just remind everybody of, of who Marion Barry is? He, they caught him smoking crack with a hooker while he was, uh, I believe, the incumbent. Mayor of DC, I believe that is the the proper word, if I'm not mistaken. Woo, I'm on fire. <laughs> they called him smoking crack, and yeah. he got off with it, and he came out, and he said, "Free at last, free at last." Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. <laughs> Martin Luther King was spinning in his grave, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and Rock Newman helped this man. He went on a PR tour yeah. all across DC in his Cadillac to get people back on the side of Marion Barry, and he did it. He did it. And that, my friend, my friends, is who we have on the show. Please welcome Mr. Rock Newman. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Rock, Rock Newman. How are you, buddy? I'm great. I'm Sergio. This is my co-host, Derek. Nice to meet you, Rock. Derek. You guys look like you could be related. (laughs) Crispy white shirt. I'm feeling it. Looks good. Rock Newman, the myth, the legend, the man. So happy to have you on P.O.P., a.k.a. Picking Off Punches. Rock, just so you know, this podcast is designed to highlight magnetic boxing figures, but you are more than a boxing figure. I know you're a community organizer. You're also a broadcaster yourself, or you were in the past. We want to learn all about that. But one thing I learned about you early on, you were part of a big family, correct? You were the the youngest of seven, is that correct? The youngest of eight. I had five brothers and two sisters. Wow. Where'd you grow up? In a little rural community. I was born in Washington, D.C., but grew up in a little rural community, Brandywine, Maryland, about 30 miles south of Washington, D.C., but it was like being a million miles away, you know, man. We had had farm animals, and uh, we grew our own vegetables, so it was very rural, a farm-like community where I grew up. So I imagine uh, it was correct, and uh, you used uh, an outhouse to like the age of 16 type thing. It was rural like that. That would be correct. We were, uh, I guess we certainly would be defined as being impoverished. It just never seemed that way because uh, we always had plenty of food, and my mom used to loan people money all the time. So uh, I I didn't know that I, I was in poverty. I did know that I wanted to move away from the community that I was in outside of that, see the world. You know, uh, all of my brothers were, were like, as my dad was, were, were truck drivers, cement truck drivers. I just knew I wanted more than that. At what age did you have that self-discovery? Oh, man. I mean, pro- I, as early as early as like the fourth grade, you know, and I think it really was my obsession with sports 
and seeing some of the lifestyle of some of the uh, athletes that I that I so love. And I, I read the newspapers religiously. There was a period of time I could tell you who the top 10, uh, who had the top 10 batting averages and and the NFL players, you know, I, I was, uh, I was obsessive in my interest in sports. And you, you were a pretty damn good baseball player, man. Line you drive know, hitting. <laughs> I know I've done my research on the rock line drive hitting. Meanwhile, I was the reason why my peewee league championship lost. Cause I missed the foul ball. I mean, I missed the ball that came to right field first time in the season <laughs> out of 12 games. And I dropped it rock. I don't think about that much anymore. It's funny how we remember those things because every time that I revisit my old home area, there was a school not far from my high school in junior high school, which was Gwynn Park High School, which, by the way, the the, the field is now named after me. All right. I throw that plug in. That shameless plug. I, I like throw it. In. That was smooth. But, but it's a school, Surrattsville, man. And I remember being in the uh, seventh grade. I was the starting catcher on the junior high school team, which was said grade seven, eight, nine. Guy tried to uh, uh, stretch a triple into a home run. And the, I had the ball waiting on him at the plate. And he came in and slid and I tagged him. And a goddamn devil just made the ball drop out of my <laughs> And the dudes, that was the winning run, man. Every time I go by there, I remember that trauma, man. I remember that trauma. It told me to hold on tight to things that I love. That's a great lesson for life. Yeah, that's a good lesson right there. What made you decide to get into boxing? Well, I'll tell you something. When I became the obsessive Cassius fan, mm -hmm. 1962, I wasn't aware of him when he was in the Olympics. I was only eight years old then. Okay. But in about 62... I started reading about this guy that says that Archie Moore must fall in four and Doug Jones, the big fat hen, he might go 10. <laughs> and I started, and you know what? And I became just obsessive. And Muhammad Ali, his life and career had the biggest impact on my life than any other human being. And I'm talking mom, dad, friends, teachers, whatever. The greatest impact on my life came from Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali. The night that he won the title, February 25th, 1964, against Sonny Liston, my birthday was the day before. And so I knew that Ali was going to, that Cassius Clay still at the time was going to give me the gift of a victory for my birthday that night. And everyone else that I talked to, my mom, my dad, my priest, my elementary school principal, my teacher, all of my classmates laughed at me to even think that this scared big mouth punk from Louisville, Kentucky could beat, you know, Sonny Liston, the baddest man on the planet at the time. And I kept, I, I just kept man saying, yes, he can. Yes, he can. And on that night when Liston sat on the stool and, and Clay became the champion, I had a total psychological, mental transformation that said, if I believed it, I didn't care what anybody else said. I could achieve what I wanted to achieve. And so I had a two-pronged plan. I wanted to become a professional baseball player. But if I didn't, looking at the boxing game through 12-year-old eyes, I said, well, if, if something happens and I can't become a professional baseball player, I want to be what Angelo Dundee is. Now, to me at the time, Angelo Dundee was his manager, his he was everything. And uh, of course, he was his trainer. He wasn't his manager. I don't know, man. I just had something. I just loved that scene, you know? So I said right at about 12 years old, if for some reason I can't play professional baseball, that's what I want to do. And, you know, watch what you dream for, dream about and ask for because it might just happen. How'd you, how'd you meet Riddick Bowe? Riddick Bowe, in the lead up to the Olympics, was going around and meeting promoters and managers in the fight game to talk to them about, to see, you know, who he might want to represent him. And really, you know, Riddick had a little hustle with him 
where in meeting with everybody, he also had a unique way of of hustling and getting a few dollars from you, you know, if it, whether it was a hundred or 50 or whatever it might be. And he'd tell a sad story. It was true, but he'd tell a sad story <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, he'd been living with his mom and seven or eight other people in a little two bedroom, you know, apartment. His, uh, his sister had recently been murdered and, you know, he had a brother dying of AIDS. So I was working with Butch Lewis and Michael Spinks at the time. But I had every intent to leave the business once Spinks lost to Tyson. I had decided I wanted to get out of the business. It wasn't a business, the business of boxing I didn't like so much. You know, the competition I thought was fantastic. I, I didn't like the business so much. So I was getting ready to get out and I and I said, I said, the only thing that would keep me in would be an opportunity to work with someone to be able to control the situation with someone who I thought had a chance to become the heavyweight champion. But I didn't think that was going to materialize. So I really met with Riddick more than Butch did. Butch Lewis at the time, you know, he was, he, he is, is funny. He told Bo, he said, man, yeah, you know, we can do something in here. I'll give you a few dollars which actually Bo wasn't supposed to be taken, but you know, that's a hundred years ago. So he said, but man, when, the, when they put the microphone on you, make sure you say thanks to Butch Lewis and all that Butch Lewis is doing for me and all that kind of thing. Butch was not short on ego at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and whenever Riddick got on camera, he never mentioned that. So you know, Butch called me a couple of times. It's like, man, that motherfucker, <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucker ain't said nothing about us yet. <laughs> when he lost, first of all, in 1988, when he fought Lennox Lewis, I thought Bo won the first round of the fight. Mm -hmm. In the second round, Lennox hit him with a good shot. He didn't go down or anything. He didn't buckle or any of that. And the Polish referee came in. And I really thought stopped the fight immaturely. So I was not in any way bothered that he didn't perform or he didn't win the gold medal. I, I, I really, that didn't phase me at all because I had gotten to know him fairly well. I had advised him do not go to the Olympics mm. because I was very concerned. He had ruptured a tendon in his, I and I think it was in his right hand. He had surgery like a few months before. And I thought that he could, he would take the risk of hurting it more where he may not be able to continue to fight. But he, he went, he wanted to do it, you know. And so when he came back and the New York Daily News, the New York Post, man, they had him on the back pages of, you know, the sports section, man. They were calling him ridiculous Riddick and saying that he was destined to be the next Mitch Green. Uh. And so those who had pursued him before, the Duvas, Shelly Finkel, Don King, uh, Aram, they would still sign him, but they really didn't want to give him anything. And certainly, I didn't have the financial wherewithal of any of them. And I kept telling Butch, some kind of way Butch had become fascinated with Michael Bent as a heavyweight. And I kept telling Butch, I was like, man, if somebody brings Bo along properly, he's the one, man. He can become the heavyweight champion. And eventually I harassed Butch about that. I said, man, I'm getting out of the business, so I don't have any interest. So one day he was like, rock and roll, <laughs> rock and roll, stop fucking me, me, with me about Riddick Bo, man, I didn't want nothing to do with that. And so he went on and on. So I thought about it. There was a mutual friend that I had that Bo knew, and it was Kelly Swanson, the publicist. I don't know if you guys done anything with her or know of her. Kelly was kind of sharing with me, you know, what some of the other people were doing and all of that. So long story short, I told Butch, I said, look, if you don't want to do anything with him. If you did, my loyalty is such that we have worked together. I would never try to step in and cut you out. I'm encouraging you to sign. But if you're not going to, I will give consideration to doing it. He's like, man, 
He's going to break your heart, you know, go for it, go for it. But he's going to break your heart. And then I started talking to Riddick about representing him and uh, agreed to give him $50,000 and, you know, get him out of that apartment in Brooklyn, you know, get him a car and do some things and to start the journey. You know, man, on the press release, when we signed on December the 19th, 1988, I said, I expect him to be the heavyweight champion. Within four years, I picked the date. It was no, it was uh, uh, September the 21st. It was a Saturday night, and it had happened to be the date of my first serious girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> make sure that, and, make sure uh, that said, door is closed and your wife doesn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's locked. It's locked. <laughs> that was the date. I said, you know, in less than four years, you'll be the heavyweight champion if you follow the plan we put together. I spent a Man, I spent a couple of months trying to convince Eddie Futch okay. to be Bo's trainer. And Eddie, you know, of course, at the time was older and he didn't, you know, he said he didn't want to do it. He didn't think Bo had what it, what it took. And, and I kept trying to convince him otherwise. And, it, and finally, Eddie said yes. Man, you know, we were we were off to the races. Yep. I didn't know that you were you were with Spinks. Were you with, were you with Spinks when he uh beat Larry Holmes? I was not. I came right after that. You know, really Butch approached me about working with them because he knew that I had, you know, had some political background and at the time the world uh, uh the uh, Spinks had had all the titles. Yeah. And the World Boxing Association was still recognizing South Africa. And we wanted, to, uh, he had the idea. As a matter of fact, Don Hubbard, who worked with him, really was the one that had the idea to try to use their platform to get South Africa to stop recognizing the WBA. And that kind of was my purpose originally coming in. And I took over really sort of the marketing, the advertising, the promotion. Uh, Butch was in a protracted legal dispute with Don King in the Hilton Hotel. I don't know if you remember, you know, they signed as quote unquote, the dynamic duo to have a boxing tournament. And uh, Butch pulled Spinks out of that. You know, man, there were many, many months over the course of, I think, a year and a half where, you know, he was tied up in court and I pretty much, you know, I, I helped out a lot. I, I ran some things from the New York office. Gotcha. And but, you know, I was there for the for the for the Tankstead fight, for the Jerry Cooney fight. And for the Mike Tyson fight, that was with them a couple of years. It seems given your history with, with relationship with your with your fighters and the people that you cared about, you were like loyal and you went all out for them. Where'd you learn that from? Oh, man, you know something, guys? I think that some kind of way I was blessed with a gene, with a loyalty gene, I think. And I'm going to say this, with a loyalty gene, which I had to learn later on, that came with a sensibility that said that I will, I mean, I'll go to war for a friend of mine. I'll go to war for somebody that I represent, that I care about. And I will go, man, I'll go, I'll, I'll go down fighting. But there does come a time when if someone is on a personal train track to a wreck, that it becomes you know, the friend's responsibility or the person that's on that track to pull up and get off that track rather than try to kill all of us. And I've had that kind of a relationship, you know, with, uh, you know, that, that's high profile, for example, with Marion Barry, who, uh, you know, many people credited me with being the architect of his recovery from being the most politically dead politician in the country ever because he got caught on tape smoking crack cocaine and saying the bitch set me up <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you know he was sent to prison and Marion was a, I had become friends with Marion and this was a, right around the same time I was launching Bo's career so, man, I was getting advice from all quarters, you know, man, don't hang with that guy. You're going to mess up. 
you know, your image and you're trying to launch Bo and all of that, that stuff didn't matter to me. He was my friend and I was going to do all I could to help him. Well, you know, he, he did his prison time. He came back. We put together really what was what I think a political marketing campaign that was phenomenal that got him back to become a city council person. And then he ran for mayor against all odds and got into the mayor's office again. Wow. Yeah. And then he started to his frailties came forward again, so much so that at one point when I knew that he was doing the things that he had promised not to do, such as, you know, destroy himself with, with drugs again, you know, I had a real heart to heart, a come to Jesus, if you will, and said, man, you promised the people you weren't going to do this. And I put my reputation on the line saying the same thing. And if you continue to do this and to break the commitment that you made, and you're on this train that's getting ready to run into disaster, don't ask me to stay on the train with you. You know, you get off the train. And, you know, those frailties were more powerful than his will to overcome them at the time. And he kept doing what he was doing. And I called on him to resign. And, um, you know, we parted ways for several years, you know, afterwards, you know, we had heart to heart, you know, way after. And he said, man, I understand. I was pissed off with you at the time, but I understand why you did what you did, you know? But I mean, so I had gone through that, like, you know, with him and that's my nature, man, to, to be in the foxhole and fight to the end as long, you know, you're trying to, we're trying to fight together. So I've, I've long held that, you know. You uh, you put yourself in harm's way a few times with for Riddick, uh, the Elijah Tillery fight. I, I was just a kid. That was the first time I'd actually seen your your face on a on a TV screen, when <laughs> when he uh, he he uh, I think he went to kick uh, Riddick Bow after the bell, I believe, and uh, he pulled him over the top rope, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, man. I'll tell you. I've been- I mean, that's that's I became a jailhouse hero that night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the all the all the guys in prison throughout the country and outside of the country. There was something about that that appealed to them, you know, where they were like, man, that's the kind of guy I want to have by myself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, the truth of the matter is it wasn't as heroic or gangster as it looked. <laughs> you know, my family was in the in, in the arena that night. Uh, Seth Abraham and all the honchos at HBO had come down, and I was in charge of all of the promotion, man. I worked my ass off, so much so, if you notice, I had like a, a Deodora a sweatsuit yep, on. Yep. I didn't even have time to go to the hotel room and change. <laughs> so... You know, and probably good because I'd have got my I'd have got my nice suit all messed up. <laughs> but so when Tillery started kicking Bo in the in his private parts, man, my instinct that old loyal instincts I guess you're talking about, they just kicked in. And what I tried to do, honestly, I tried to get up and get between them, you know, break it up. But one of Tillery's guys grabbed my legs. I was standing up on the ring corner. On the ring apron, he grabbed my legs and yanked me. When he yanked me, I clotheslined Tiller and he flipped backwards out. Yeah. I'm telling you, it, it looks gangster and spectacular. It does. But, you know, we got about $10 million worth of publicity out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I got fined $500. I said, well, I can handle that. <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, you would, guys would be shocked the number of letters that found their way to my office, man, after that. It just was an interesting, dynamic, crazy experience. Some kind of way, crazy experiences found their way into our camp on multiple occasions. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the, the fight with Galata. We actually just did an episode on that. Uh-huh. Well, Galata, yeah. he continued to hit Riddick Bolo for both fights. Two that, was fights. At, that was at the Garden, 1996. Yeah, the right? original ride was at the Garden, yeah. First one was at the Garden. Yeah, the second one was down in Atlantic City. 
You know, man, when they say styles make fights, well, it was a couple of things. At that point, Bo felt as if he was so comfortable materially, money, you know, bunch of houses, bunch of cars, a bunch of money in the bank. He became harder and harder to convince, to take it seriously and to get in position. Mm. Eddie and Thel both felt like, you know, Galata, you know, he could take Galata even if he wasn't at his best. He, he, he was out of shape. He wasn't training like he was supposed to. No, absolutely what, not. What would a day at the gym look like for Riddick Bowe at that time? Maybe before he got his hands taped, he ate a big box of sugar frosted flakes. <laughs> I mean, you know, Riddick. Resting on a medicine ball as a pillow. You know, the thing is, for, for somebody that came from where Riddick uh, came from, like, um, I, I have. Is he from the Ville? From he's from Brownsville. Brownsville. So, like, yeah, yeah Brownsville. Yeah, I, 250 Lot Avenue. I, mean, I wasn't too far from there. I, I lived in East New York, Brooklyn. But I, I remember for a lot of my life, I did not have much money. And when I finally got settled, there was a hunger in me that went away once I knew that I didn't have to worry about finances has any anymore. You know, before I signed Bo, I said something to him and he looked at me like I had four heads and asked <laughs> the question, well, what well, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I said to him, I said, man, the sum total of my experiences, now that I've gotten to know you the way that I know you, I am uniquely qualified to represent you. So he said, so what does that mean? I said, well, I'm going to be very candid with you. You know, first of all, I'm a passionate person. I want to win. I've paid my dues in this boxing world and gotten to be an expert in what's supposed to happen in the ring and what's supposed to happen outside the ring. I know how to handle these no good bastards in the alphabet soup organization. I know how to handle, and I'm not afraid of Duva, Aram, King, or any of them. And I will, you know, I will fight for you, man. I said, now that's on one level. On the other level, you know, I was a, I was a counselor for five years. And, you know, by and large, although I'm not accredited with a counseling degree, I have a lot of counseling experience. So he said, in other words, you think Big Daddy's crazy. <laughs> so I said, I, I, I'm not saying you're crazy, but you need a lot of tender love and care. And also, you know, I had a talk show on a radio station that wasn't paying me any money. I had to go out and sell advertising and I had to do promotion and I had to do marketing. I had to do all of those things, all of those things together uniquely qualify me to represent you. And I'm serious about the counseling part because you do a lot of, you're in, you have some instincts that are very self-destructive and I wanna try to help you get past those. And guys, for many years, as he was rising, I was in his ear, man, and Bo would give a speech and, and he would kind of repeat what I had said to him, which was, do the right thing because the right thing is always the right thing to do. The, doing the right thing is always the right time to do the right thing. And that was being put in his ear after he grew up on a motto that said, only a fool and a mule works hard. Now, where did that come from? That came from the days of slavery. His mother lived in Georgia with sharecroppers. The sharecroppers, his great-grandparents, his those were his grandparents. His great-grandparents were slaves. And, the, the, and there was that theory, that was that saying that came out of slavery and sharecropping, nobody works hard but a fool and a mule because you don't get anything for the work that you put in. And he heard that, man, all of his life, all of his life. When he got to be about 12 years old and saw what Muhammad Ali was doing, he had a dream of being rich and famous. But he did not connect being rich and famous with the work ethic that it took to get there. And so he did not have self-motivation. I'm telling you stuff, man, that's going to be in my book when I write it, but you know, I took him to a sports psychologist one time 
And the sports psychologist told me, he said, look, I'm willing to work with him, but I want to be very candid with you. If I work with him, you guys may not last. So I said, okay, well, why do you say that? He said, because now he depends on you and not himself. If I can work with him and bring him along, I want to teach him self-accountability. Because right now he's doing all of this because you are inspiring him to do. You're demanding that he do this. But I will have him more self-accountable. And I said, Doc, go for it. I want him to be self-accountable. And if I'm a casualty in that process, I'm willing to take that risk. And so, you know, I told Bo, you know, hey, man, we got another appointment. He was like, man, you know, you told me that that guy, you know, uh, was, was a sport that would help me improve my sports. He a goddamn shrink. And Big Daddy ain't crazy. He don't need, he don't need him. And he just absolutely refused to go back to see him. So it was left, it was left up to me <laughs> to a large extent. Managers and promoters don't typically spend their time in training camp. We're out making deals and doing what we do, generating revenue. Riddick had the greatest trainer on the planet, Eddie Futch. But if I wasn't in training camp, things would absolutely fall apart. He relied on, on my passion, on my, on my spirit. And if, and if I wasn't there, it would be more likely he wouldn't get up in the morning. I mean, it happened on a number of occasions. Hey, I spent every camp I was in camp doing what I had to do, uh, motivating him. And I always said, the night he won the title guys, they wanted us to come around the back of the Mirage Hotel and go into the tunnel and come in and walk in through the back into the victory party. I said, oh, hell no. <laughs> We're pulling right up front <laughs> where the crowds are gathered, and that's all right. We're going we to make our way through this, through this crowd. But before I let him get out of the car, I said, man, let, let's, let's talk for a second. There, there ain't nobody going anywhere. They're going to be right there. When, let's talk for a second. I said, there's only one person on this planet that can beat you down. This performance you put on tonight, you're the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And there ain't but one human being on the planet that can beat you. And he's like, oh, who the hell is that? And I'm like, Riddick Lamont Bo, you're the only person that can beat you. We can beat the rest of them. You're the only person that can beat you. And I said, who do you consider your, your biggest enemy in boxing right now? He said that, you know, that he called him a few names, Lennox Lewis. <laughs> so I said, well, what Lennox would want would be for you to have won this title, made this money, and to go home and gain 50, 60, 70 pounds, get yourself out of shape and have to struggle for the next fight. And of course, you know, that night he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And you know, I'm not going to do that. And between, that was on, that was uh, November the 13th, 1992. When he went in training camp, 2nd of January, he had gained 50 pounds. And we had a fight February the 6th against Michael Dokes. Now, you know, Michael Dokes wasn't the toughest competition. And that was by intention. <laughs> People criticized me for getting, for getting him a couple of easy fights. I'm like, okay, keep criticizing and, and we'll keep taking this $8 million payday. <laughs> but yeah, man, it was a struggle. It was you know, my biggest struggle, the industry hated me and they were, and I didn't love them. I wore their hatred as a badge of honor. They weren't the toughest opponent. Riddick was his own toughest opponent. Do, do you still keep in contact with Riddick? Do you know what he's up to these days? I do not. I do not. Riddick broke my, as, like Butch Lewis said, he said, ain't going to break your heart. Well, you know, we did wonderful things. We climbed the highest of high mountains in the sport together, you know, to achieve what we both dreamed of. But afterwards, after the, the lot of fight and him going into the military and then him making some decisions to, you know, go down and kidnap his wife 
and so many of the things I stood by him, man, I went to court, I, I helped him get off. But after that, he just started doing monumentally self-destructive things. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, big, big daddy got to take over his, got to take over his own business. And at the time guys, when he did that, I gave him boxes and boxes and boxes of paperwork and accounts and contact numbers and names and all of those things, man. And I said, Riddick, you know, you got too much wealth to jeopardize your health. I'm not going to support you fighting again. He said he wanted to, and he had to take over his own business. And, you know, at the time, and I want to make this point at the time he bragged, he, not me, he bragged about having $20 million in cash, six homes, 26 cars, all the kids' college education paid for, and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's what he bragged about after he decided that he wanted to handle his own money, and I had nothing to do with any of his business, money, or anything else beyond that time. Now, in his most delusional, crazy way, Years later, when he got broke, where people swindled him, you know, he got a divorce. Years later, when he became broke, he then said, I stole money from him, which, you know, is beyond insane and extremely easy to prove how crazy and false that was. But that, so that's why I want to make that point. When I had nothing else to do with him financially, friendship wise or anything, he had a net worth that was, it was probably approaching $30 million. Wow. I can just tell given your passion and your loyalty that that that's hurtful. And, and it seems like present day, I mean, it still affects you. Is that, is that, is that correct in saying? Let me tell you something, man. You know, it, when I was walking in court with him and I was the central witness on his behalf, and, you know, this was, and I can't say this, I think, without it sounding self-aggrandizing, but on the witness stand, over the course of a couple of days, you know, said my piece. The judge said to me, uh, Mr. Newman, you seem to know these two people better than anyone. If you were in my position, what would you do? I said, I wouldn't put Riddick Bowe in jail. I said, you know, we had put together a defense where he had a, where, you know, where our medical experts said that he had frontal lobe damage from boxing, which was something that could be repaired as long as he didn't take re other repeated blows. So I said, let him recover. Let the part that controls his instincts repair, and he's not a danger to society. So don't put him behind bars when he can go out and do some good work. You know, this is obviously public record. It's in the court record, the document. So it's not me here, you know, blowing smoke up anybody's butt. The judge in his sentencing, I said, I would make sure that he wasn't boxing. Because if he boxes, then that could be damaged. So the judge gave him, told him, four years, you, you can't box. We're not going to put you in jail. And, you know, basically he was, you know, left to go free and in all of his wisdom. And, and while we were going in court that day is what I wanted to say. While we were walking into the court that day, I had to use all the strength and composure that was within my being not to burst out crying on the street because I had a dream for it to be another way. That also went in my first press release. I said he was going to win the title within four years, and we wanted to use the platform to show other athletes, other boxers, how a client and representative relationship should be. We want, I wanted us to be the poster boys for how that should be. And here I was walking in court, afraid that a judge was going to put him in jail for some of the dumbass things that he did. 
keep in mind, I mean, he showed up at Judy's at the house where Judy was living. His wife was living with duct tape, a, a Bowie knife, a body bag and pepper spray. That's the kind of dumb shit he was doing. And we saved him from that, man. Yet and still, after that was over with, he went out and did a lot of other dumb stuff and self-sabotage and destroyed himself, man. And years later, blamed me. Go figure. So, no, I do not talk to him. I don't care to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. He's not my kind. Of, he turned out to be, he became the heavyweight champion of the world, but he turned out to be very much not my kind of guy. And yeah, 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 that broke, that broke my heart. That broke, that broke my heart. Would you say uh, having an experience like that with someone you were promoting and a, and a friend, a longtime friend, really turned you off from boxing? Is this something that you're absolutely, like, done with? Or do you still keep an eye on it and, and, you know, the state of it? And if so, what do you think the state of it is right now? Good question, guys. Good question. That didn't do it. It made me reticent about investing so much of my life into someone else that no matter how close you thought you are, it was Seth Abraham and Ross Greenberg, Mark Taffet, and might've been Kerry Davis at HBO. They said to me one day later, they said, you know, you saved him from all the scoundrels in boxing, but the one thing you couldn't do was save him from himself. And that's a universal truth, man. You can't save somebody from themselves if they are on a path of self-destruction. You might slow it down, interfere with it, arrest it from time to time. But at the end of the day, if that's where their mentality is, that's what happens. But that alone didn't do it. I still, I loved the sport of boxing. I despised most of the people in boxing and the, the exploitation that they practiced. And I never became a part of it. Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes did a piece on me. And Mike Wallace asked me a question. I didn't know it was coming. He said, so you're going to clean up boxing. And man, I had to take a long pregnant pause. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I, I can't say that I can clean up boxing, but I'm never going to let boxing dirty me. Mm. So through the years, you know, I was, I'd look at the big fights coming up, uh, Pacquiao and Mayweather and, you know, some of the big fights. But one day I was watching, I don't know whether it was ESPN or what it was. And I saw these two fighters, they were six round fighters. And they both were big punchers, and neither of them had any skill, really, not any defense. So it was like rock'em, sock'em robots. That's a very good term. They were throwing <laughs> and landing bombs on each other. And in my calculation, they probably were getting $1,000 a piece. I mean, you know, they were undercard. And I mean, at the end of the fight, both of their faces looked like it had been through meat grinders, man. And at that moment, I said, I don't like boxing anymore. I don't like it as a sport and as a competition anymore. And I'm never going to buy another pay-per-view fight. I'm never going to pay for another ticket. I'm not, I'm not going to, my protest is I'm not going to participate in that. In closing, what are you doing these days? And we really do- Man, I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff. I'm loving my puppies. Oh, nice. Down here in Boca Raton, Florida, loving loving the weather. I'm consulting uh, uh, several different kinds of uh, projects and loving life. Hey guys, it was great to be with you. I got to run. Thank you so much, Rock. Rock. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right, man, thank you. Rock Newman, everybody. What a, what a, what a fantastic guest. Wonderful guest, man. Well, I, 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 I got to be honest with the people. I didn't want him on originally. Did. Dennis Sergio was fighting me too. Derek, you fought? Yeah, yeah. You fought for him? Is this... I, I fought for him because every man deserves their say, you know, to defend himself. I, I just didn't really know too much about the him. The thing is this. If you, talk, if, if you talk about me now, you go, Derek's a good guy. He's my friend. You know what I mean? Derek will stick his neck out for me, right? But, but on if you paper, talk, it's a check of pass. If you ask somebody that doesn't know me now but knew me back in the day, they will go, you're out of your mind. He's, he's a dirtbag. He's a crook. He's a crook. Right. And, you know, we don't even... It wasn't even if Rock was a crook or not. It was just there was... He was portrayed not in the best light in the media. 
So what's interesting is that I, I did, just didn't know. I didn't know bad or good about him. I just didn't know much about mm-hmm. him. Well, you knew, you know but, what made me like him? Yeah. Seeing, yeah, pulling Elijah Tillery over the ropes. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I fuck with this guy. Right. Yeah. So I'm getting, you know, just what he's given me today. And holy shit. I mean, he seems like a genuine dude. Like, I believe him. He seems like a real dude. Yeah, like absolutely. Real. And it, 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 I feel like his story kind of falls into that category where, like, you can't always fucking trust the media. No, no. You yeah. can't help. Absolutely not. You know, it's just like we get caught up. Sometimes we get bits of information. It's easy, right? It's like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm running with. I want right, to have an right, opinion right. on this shit. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you got to do your research. You got to talk to the people. And right. you got to, like, feel it in your gut. So I fucks with Rock. I like him. Yeah. We still don't know if he's black, white, or Chinese. Right. We have no idea. Jesus Christ. We have no idea. Could be, I have no, I have no what idea. What if he allows you to pull off his? He's just a black man underneath. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Rock, I th- I where's your collection I of dashikis at? I definitely, he, well, he did wear a dashiki the one time I remember. He was talking shit in it too. <laughs> he was talking wild shit. He was like, yeah, my fighter's gonna bust your fighter's ass. I and his dashiki. I, it, he got a nice beard, Rock. Yeah, it's a majestic yeah, beard. Yeah, majestic beard. It's a, it's a beard that deserves three women at one time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he smells like incense. Rock, yeah. yeah. He's a, yo, he's a, he's a classy dude. Man. I like him. You know, he was he poor. He in a great mood. He was poor. He's, you know, Muhammad Ali got him into boxing, like joined the club on that, right, man? I mean, the first time I heard Ali speak, I was, I didn't even see him throw a punch. I just heard him talking. I was like, who is this guy? You know, you know what I mean? Ali didn't grab me. He didn't grab me. Really? Yeah. I mean, who? it was black and white. I didn't care for it. Really? I wanted color for my fights. So, you know, I just remember him saying to Sonny Listen, than me. he grabbed, <laughs> he had a collar. In his hand, and he was yelling at Sonny Liston's uh, tour bus. He goes, "I'm gonna collar that big black bear." I was like, "Holy shit!" And he's shaking a collar at him. That's awesome. Yeah. And now I can appreciate it. But when I was a kid, I didn't want anything black and white. The only thing I wanted black and white was "I Love Lucy." Rest mm. in peace, Lucille Ball. And Desi Arnaz. He was a, he was a wife beater. Was he? According to the media. I mean, at that time though. Yo. <laughs> And he was, he's not from here, man. Culture is a culture clash. <laughs> he was Cuban, right? Does he? <laughs> but what a fantastic, what a fantastic yeah. guest. I, um, I, I, I would love to have Listen, man, again. piece of boxing history. He like really brought like two eras together. You know, he was working with Butch a little bit there. He said like from the Ali Spinks into Holyfield, Riddick Bow era, era. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, and we learned a lot. We learned a lot. I, great conversation. Yeah, he's a, you could say he's a smart person. Very well smart guy. Very smart. And I like I like stories. Like the guy had nothing growing up. You know, he was poor, dirt poor, dirt poor. You know, and uh, look what he did. And he did stuff for his community in D.C. You know, and uh, just a lot of respect for him. I, I loved it. Yeah, I loved every moment. So shout out to Rock Newman. Thanks for coming out. That was a fantastic show. Until the next one, it's P.O.P. picking off punches. Derek Jusha. I'm Sergio Chacon. We out of here.